of your grace to us, uh, to, to bring us to yourself, to allow us to come and worship you. Um, God, we ask that you would continue to work in our hearts uh, this morning by your spirit, that we would be humble in this moment, uh, that you would change our hearts, that you would make your word clear to us. God, that we would never be, over, be able to get over the truth of the gospel. God, we don't want to just understand it in our minds. We want it to consume every fiber of our being, every thought, every word, everything we do so that we would look more like you. God, we ask and pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. Thanks for being here. Uh, for those of you that I haven't met, which I know is still a lot of you, uh, my name is Mark Russell. I'm a, a pastoral intern here, as Eric mentioned, uh, so I get to hang out with him and the guys on Fridays, which has been uh, just an awesome opportunity and encouragement to me. Um, I do just want to take a, a moment here before we get going to uh, thank Eric and the, the elders for uh, giving me the pulpit this morning. This is, uh, this is an awesome thing to be able to do. Uh, it's not one I take lightly. And uh, I hope to honor them by preaching the word faithfully to you this morning. Um, we're going to jump right in. If you've been uh, following along in our, our Bible reading plan that we go through as a church, uh, you know that we uh, just started going through First John. We'll be in chapter 2 this morning. I'm going to read uh, through verse 14. So if you would, turn there with me. First John 2. Starting in verse 1 here. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Pray with me, if you would. Lord, uh, again, we come to you humbly, Lord. We know that, that if it weren't for you, uh, we would not be able to 
to see the glory that's in your word. And so we ask that you would do a work in our hearts this morning. Let us see it and let us believe it, Lord. Give me clarity of thought. Give me the words to speak. And uh, Lord, um, change our hearts so that we would respond accordingly. We pray these things in your name. Amen. There's a, there's a common uh, phrase or maybe just kind of like mantra of life uh, that says this. It says, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I'm sure you've all used this or maybe uh, thought this at some point about various things. It, be, it can be used in kind of like a, a commiserating type of way, right? Um, you have something annoying that happens, you make a change that you think is going to fix it, but then the problem just comes back, right? Or maybe it's just the reality of, of certain family dynamics we have, right? We all have these family dynamics between, uh, between siblings, between parents, between parents and siblings, and we think maybe when all the kids grow up, some of those dynamics are going to change, right? Only to grow up and realize that uh, everybody is just as annoying in all the same ways as they used to be. Uh, in fact, if anything, they're far better at it now. Maybe, maybe it's a, a job situation. Maybe you... Maybe you work really hard, uh, but you don't feel appreciated, uh, you don't feel taken care of, and then you have like a change in management or something, there's a new boss, and you think, all right, now I'm going to be appreciated, I'm going to have more opportunities, Uh, I'm going to be better taken care of, I'll be recognized, and then none of that happens. I I don't know what it is, but there are just all sorts of these things that just happen in life, and no matter how much time passes and how much people grow up or or how much circumstances change, a lot of things remain the same. I think this is true of the larger things in life as well, though, so not just some of those smaller details or, or annoyances or whatnot that we just deal with. There's also just the reality that life itself, while it's changing rapidly all around us, it really doesn't change. All the time, there's there's new technology being brought into the world. There's new leaders, new laws. There's new uh, cultural and societal agendas and emphases in life. Life changes all the time. But despite how much it changes, it really doesn't change all that much. When we really think deeply about it, the, the core basic longings and struggles of human, human beings don't ever change, right? We, we all long for the same things. We long for for purpose, for identity, for fulfillment. We all, not as individuals maybe, but, but collectively, we have the same desires, same tendencies, same capacities. We ask the same basic questions about life and have the same basic needs. It's in that sense that the preacher in Ecclesiastes he says this, he says, there is no new thing under the sun because the more things change, the more they stay the same. And can I just say, the Bible from front to back is really no different in that regard. Its message, while it takes different shapes and forms, it's the same message all throughout. So what exactly do I mean by this from 1 John 2 this morning? What I want to argue is that there is a basic movement that this text lays out for the life of God's people. And that movement is the same basic movement that has been given to God's people since the very beginning. A lot has changed since the beginning. A lot has been filled in. A lot has happened. God has revealed himself in new and different and greater ways. But the command is the same and the calling is the same. And what I want to look at is, I think, 
four main components of what the life of God's people looks like, and just briefly show the consistency of that message since the beginning of Scripture. Sound good? All right. We're in too deep now anyways, all right? Four things. Let's jump in. The first thing we see is a, a call to not sin. Verse 1, if you look there, it's, it's the very first words of our text. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And it's com- important to consider a few things here. First, John is writing to, to Christians. He's writing to believers. And we see this in a number of places, most prominently probably in chapter 2 here, where he says in, in verses 12 to 14, at the end of what we read, he says that he's writing to people whose sins have been forgiven, who have overcome the evil one, uh, who know the Father. I think we can also just look at the purpose of the book as a whole, which he kind of gives us in two parts, um, this, this twofold purpose. If you look in verse 1-4, which we saw last week, he says, we are writing these things to you so that your joy may be complete. And then over in chapter 5, verse 13, again, very clear, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so we see very quickly, just from the the purpose of the book, John is writing to believers, and he writes so that they would continue to believe and so that their joy may be complete. And I think just making these observations are helpful for, for two reasons. For one, it shows us that this book is not a book that's trying to give you a measuring stick for whether or not you're a Christian, right? Here in verse 1 of our text, it doesn't tell you to not sin so that you can then assess yourself up against that standard to determine whether or not you're really saved or whether or not you're a good Christian, maybe. No, this command, just like the rest of the book, it is written to Christians for the purpose of helping them to have joy and continue in belief. And that leads right into the second thing here, which I... Which I it's the answer to a question that I think we all wrestle with a lot, at least I know I do. And that question is this, what is the reasons or, or yeah, reason or, or reasons for obedience for the Christian? Because if you're anything like me, when you hear things like don't sin or, or um, a call to obedience or anything like that, you'll often process that, I, that idea in the framework of bad systems or bad cultures that have made those things something that the Bible never speaks of. I think a lot of times we can hear obedience and our minds run to things like legalism, right? Because that's the only way that that obedience has ever been taught to us. We hear things like, keep my commands, and it feels burdensome to us. Like something we have to carry in a performance that we have to uphold. We can so easily preach and teach and believe that we are saved and justified by our faith and not from anything that we have to do, but then in the very next moment, live like we have to perform to keep our good standing with God. And we impose all of these things onto the Bible based on our own experience and honestly just sinful tendencies in the ways that we think, and we make it say things that it's not saying. Christian, hear me now. If you read verse 1, and you have any feelings of being overwhelmed or burdened, you're missing it. You're missing the point because the purpose of the letter and of everything that it says is so that you would continue in belief and so that your joy would be complete. This is why in in chapter 5, verse 3, he says very plainly, his commandments are not burdensome. (laughs) It doesn't get any more clear than that. 
we, we've got to start thinking about obedience from God's perspective as he's laid it out to us in his word. We, we have to think about it in terms of his reasoning and his purposes for it. And nowhere do we get the inclination that God gives us these parameters and, and these commands as a means to burden us or, or to keep him happy with us after all that he's done. His word tells us that he gives us these things, these commands. He gives them to us for our joy. This is the same way it's always been, by the way. If you think all the way back to, to Genesis, right? Genesis 1. God gives things for our good. He's deciding what is good for us. Over and over and over again in that text, God said and it was so and what? And he saw that it was good. And then God gives a command, eat of this tree, not of this tree. And in the fall, what happens? Eve is deceived in thinking that God's command to not eat of the fruit is somehow holding her back from something. She doesn't trust what God has decided and said is good for her. And the text says this. It says, right before she takes of the fruit and eats it, she saw that it was good for food. Now humanity sees what's good for itself because it it doesn't ultimately believe that what God has said is good is ultimately what's best. It believes what God says is good is ultimately a burden and something to hold them back from what would really make them happy, from true joy and fulfillment for their life. The more things change, the more they stay the same. If you've ever played a sport or maybe been uh, a part of a, a club or something similar, I don't know, this is, this is kind of how it goes, right? You join the team or you, you make the team, uh, and early on, you have a team meeting. And if you've got a good coach, one of the things he's going to do in that team meeting is he's going to He's going to set some rules, right? He's going to set some expectations. He's going to say, uh, this is what we do and, and how we do it. Uh, this is how you should handle yourself. He's going to tell you what it means to be a part of this team. In other words, yes, you have a position on the team, but now, now you need to become what a member of this team looks like. But again, if he's a good coach, he's not just going to give you those things without any reasoning or rationale. No, he, he's also going to explain to you why you need to follow them, right? He's going to explain that, that all these things that I'm putting in place, if you follow them, if you take them seriously, they're going to lead to your joy. They're going to lead to your effectiveness as a member of this team and help, you, help bring you along in its, its purpose and mission. They're going to lead to your maturity, and they're going to result in your joy. Now you see what I'm doing. Theologically, we say it like this. We say, imperatives always follow indicatives. What does that mean? It's the idea that, that what you do and what you're called to follows who you are. And so who are you? You're a Christian. <laughs> you, you've been saved by God. You are right with him. You're united to Christ. You're on his team. And as Christians, of whom all of those things are just as true in our worst moments as they are in our best moment, we live life trying to be more and more like what we have been made positionally in Christ. Not so that we can achieve or maintain our status in, with him, but so that we would have joy. Guys, we have a, a God who cares deeply for us, who loves us, who wants us to flourish. He, he didn't come down and save you so that he could have something to hold over your head, and he doesn't give us things to do so that we would 
know how to earn his favor or keep his favor. He gives us those things so that we would have joy in living in the way that he has said is good for us. And we're blessed by the fact that he's given us his word and shown us exactly what that is. And so, so we obey. We strive not to sin, not out of any sense of duty, but because we trust that what God says is good is good. Here's the reality, though. Although we're called to not sin, we all know this. The reality is that we still do. And that's the second thing here. It's the reality that, that although all of those things that we said were true of us are indeed true, we often fail in our efforts to keep the coach's standards that he set for us. And this is just a constant thing, right? We're, we're saved but we, we still live with our sin. Uh, our sin nature doesn't really get any better. And while we, we do have the spirit and the ability to have tangible victory over sin, we repeatedly go back to it. So instead of living in the joy that's available to us in God's perfect will for our lives, we experience guilt and defeat. And what it can often feel like, for me at least, is, is that the more things change, the more they stay the same. You fight, and you try, but you still fail. I love the image of this uh, in the, the Pilgrim's Progress. Have you guys, has anybody read that one? Pilgrim's Progress? Okay, a few of you, good. Um, if you've read the book, you know that the, the whole book is really kind of a metaphor for the, the Christian life. And Christian, that's the main character, that's his name, Christian. He's on a journey towards the heavenly city. He's on his way to heaven. And as he's on his way, he comes into contact with, with all these people who either encourage him on his way to Zion and help him get there, or they discourage him and deceive him and, and get him off track, right? Um, and, and so there's this moment when he comes across the character named Apollyon. So Apollyon comes, and he's, he's meant to kind of represent um, just like the, the world and everything in it, everything that would uh, work against us, the forces of the world kind of. Um, so he comes on the scene, and, and they have this short conversation, and Christian kind of dismisses him. But then Apollyon gets kind of, like, violent and aggressive. <laughs> he starts violently attacking Christian. Christian fights him off, and, uh, you know, he gets back up on his way. Uh, but, but then he comes back, and he runs after Christian trying to beat him, and he gets some shots in, right? Like, he, he, he lands some punches. He knocks him down. Christian eventually fights him off again and heads back on his way. And, and the next thing you know, Apollyon is running back after him, right? Trying to get some more shots in. And this happens a few times in the short scene where even though Christian is fighting really hard, and he ultimately he's having victory, he just keeps getting knocked down and beat up on his way to heaven. I don't know about you, but that's, that's kind of how it feels to me. I fight, uh, and I try, and I, I know I'm on my way to heaven, but one little thing here trips me up. One little temptation there, and, and all of a sudden, I'm on my back, crawling to get back up and on my way again. It, it feels like I'm stumbling towards heaven uh, more than I'm enjoying this kind of nice, swift jog, right? The jog sounds kind of bad, too, that I'm thinking about it, but you get the point. Again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We, we still sin. We struggle with the same things. 
And we have all kinds of ways that we try to, try to minimize this reality, right? I don't know if there are many things more damaging to Christians than the lie that the Christian life is just kind of this uninterrupted path uh, towards, towards more and more sinlessness, right? Like the, the belief that we just coast on this easy path of maturity. Can I just say that that is so completely not true? <laughs> it wasn't true of Paul. Romans 7, this is what he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Later he says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. First Timothy 1, he says this, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul got it. I think some of our church fathers got it. Here's just a little excerpt from a confession on assurance of all things. It says, Though they may, by the desires of the flesh and from temptations of Satan in the world, for a time fall into grievous sins, they will renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Jesus Christ until the end. I'll be the first to tell you it's not true of me, and I've never seen it true of anyone else either, right? It's this. It's one of the many ways that we believe in what we would call an over-realized eschatology. Because yes, one day you will be made perfect and sinless, but not in this life. As long as you're in this life, you have to deal with the reality that you are both sinner and saint. And if you're a Christian, you likely go back and forth between needing reminded that you're a sinner or needing reminded that you're a saint, because as long as you're living in this life, both are true of you all of the time. You will sin because we all sin. And, and we just have to be honest about the fact that we are still sinners, that we still sin, and that sometimes even it's really, really bad. I don't really think that I'm uh, short, um, but most of my life I find myself around a lot of tall people, okay? Um, I was in a wedding about, uh, I guess it'd be about a year and a half going on two years ago, um, and, and I was the best man in the wedding, uh, but there were like five other guys that all played college basketball, um, and I was the shortest one in that wedding by like four or five inches, okay? And they, they just made fun of me the whole weekend for being short. Uh, to make matters worse, we get there the day of the wedding, uh, or I guess the rehearsal, and the maid of honor who I had to walk next to all day, is the same height as me. Um, but she was wearing heels that were about two or three inches, you know, tall. Um, and, and so just, you know, dwarfed me all day long. To make matters worse, uh, I'm, I'm the, the oldest of five here. Uh, my brother, who is 20 months younger than me, okay, you can imagine how competitively we grew up. Um, He's six seven. <laughs> don't 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 laugh at me, okay? <laughs> my other, my younger brother, uh, who I grew up probably second most competitive with, and, and that was always like a you know little kid type of like I'm gonna just put my hand over your head and bully you. Like uh, he's a junior in high school now, and he he's uh, like six five. 
and I could tell you, you know, there are, you know, it's, it's not that bad. I have other good qualities that, you know, are better than them. Uh, but but it, it sucks. Like, it really does. It is, uh, it is annoying. Um, they don't ever stop talking about it. Um, I find myself all the time having to remind them, like, the, the average height for a U.S. male is 5'10", okay? I'm six feet tall. By definition, I am not short, okay? But one of the things I love in life, okay, one of my, one of my favorite things in life, um, are Nike Air Maxes. <laughs> now, here's the thing about Nike Air Maxes. They've got, they've got these soles on them that are like this thick, right? Easily like two inches. So, man, I get my Nike Air Maxes on, and I'm, I'm feeling nice. Like, I'm feeling, I'm feeling big boy in those shoes. <laughs> and here's the thing. It's not, it's not that I'm as tall as my brothers are. It's that I don't look quite as short as I actually am, right? I'm not, I'm not, I don't look as tall as them, but I don't look quite as short as I used to. I look just a little taller than I really am. We all like to put our Nike Air Maxes on when it's time to talk about our sin. We'll admit that we're sinful, but not quite as sinful as we really are. I'm going I'm to I'm just hold back a little bit of that truth to make myself not look that bad. Notice at the end of chapter 1 how, how living in the light and not the darkness is not sinlessness. It's not saying that we don't have sin. In fact, that's evidence that the light does not dwell in us. It's confessing your sin. The text assumes that you do sin. There's so much more that we could, we could say about this in God's purpose in leaving us with sin just for a time after he saves us, but, but just like there is hope for us in our sin before we were brought to God, how much more will there be hope for us on this side of it? We can call our sin what it is and be real about how deep it runs, because while it may even be really, really bad at times, there is salvation in Jesus Christ. And in fact, this was not something that he he kind of came and did and then just left us to figure out the rest of it. This is a work that he continues to do on your behalf this very second. That's the third thing that we see here. It's Christ's ongoing work on our behalf. Although Christ has saved us from our sin and we, we still go back to it, he continues to work for us. As, easy, as easily as we would believe it, when we sin, Christ doesn't leave us or even want to leave us. He doesn't turn his back on us or, or look down on us in disappointment. He doesn't second guess everything that he's done for us. What does he do when you sin? Well, look at your, look at your Bibles, verse two. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And this is sort of legal language here, right? Uh, it's the idea that he is kind of like your, uh, your defense attorney, okay? So we're not that guy that walks into the courtroom and says to the judge, I'm gonna just take this one for myself, right? Uh, no, Christ represents us. And here's what you need to realize. Don't, don't miss this. Who is this Jesus that advocates for you? Because it's not just that he's better at defending us than we are, right? It, it's, not, it's not just that he's a more skilled defender or that he has more clout with the Father and so the Father's going to be more uh, inclined to accept our case if he's the one that presents it. No, it's that he's able to advocate for us not based on our own merit but on something greater, that of his own. 
Who is the one who advocates for us in this verse? He's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the propitiation for our sins. He's the one who paid it all. He, he didn't just pass over it and pretend it didn't happen or somehow buy you more time on, on the debt that you owed, right? He didn't, he didn't refinance that debt or change the terms for it. He paid that thing. He took it upon himself and appeased the full wrath of God on your behalf. And that work was effective for every sin that every Christian, past, present, and future, ever has done, is doing right now, and ever will do in all of space, time, and history. And it is on those grounds that he is qualified and able to advocate for you when you sin. Hear me now. Jesus doesn't go to the Father and say something like this. Um, I know he sinned, but life has been hard, and um, he's trying. Uh, This was a one-time thing. I think he's going to try harder. He gets it. I think we should just let him off the hook with this one. No, that that completely misses the point, because it's not about you. (laughs) Your salvation was never and is never going to be about you. He looks at the Father and he says this, I paid for that sin. I went down and I lived like him. I lived like she did. I walked a perfect life. I'm the righteous one. And I died hanging naked on a cross for their sin, only to rise three days later and ascend here to your right hand for this very purpose, so that this sin would be paid in full. This is who Jesus is. He's, he's your Savior. And as your Savior, this is what he does. And what you need to do when you sin is confess it and then rest and trust in that truth. Because that's always been our only hope. It's that although there is nothing good in me, there is everything good in him. He, he gives me what he requires, and he accepts what he gives me. And in my weak moments, I have to respond to my own sin with hope and with trust in that truth until that glorious day when he comes back and he makes me truly sinless. The more things change, the more things stay the same. This leads us right into our fourth and, and our final point I want to bring out. Uh, which is this, it's, it's that this is the same pattern that we see given to God's people since the very beginning. This whole reality of what it means to be a part of God's people, it is, it is nothing new. It's the same thing that we've seen from the very beginning. First uh, John puts it in this kind of old command versus new command language. Um, we, we read this earlier, but look with me again. Uh, verses 3 and 4 and 7 and 8, I'll, I'll just read them quick. Uh, this, is, this is three and four. This is how we are sure that we have come to know him, by keeping his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Seven and eight. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the words you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. All right, there's a, there's, there's a few things to address here, all right? So just hang with me for a second. This may feel like a, like a zero to 60 moment for a second, all right? Uh, 
but, but John has a lot wrapped into this, and we want to try to get a clear grasp of it without, without getting too deep into the weeds. Um, but, but two things to bring out with this. First, what are the, what are the commands that he's referring to? Uh, and, and I think the answer is, it's twofold. Um, so we'll look at both ideas here. The, the first is, is just to believe, to have faith. This is, after all, as we, as we mentioned to start, one of the purposes of the book. Um, textually here, if you, if you just notice a few things, this language in verses 7 and 8 um, about the command that you've, that you've had from the beginning, uh, the message that you have heard, I, I don't think they're referring back to the beginning of like Jesus' teaching or the individual Christian life kind of, as, as I know some people take it. Um, this language primarily reminds us of... of I think verse one one. Um, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, and what we have seen with our eyes, uh, namely Christ, like Brad Brad made clear for us last week. Um, and and it's no coincidence that John starts this letter with the same language, uh, somewhat that he starts his gospel. Right. So uh, John John one in the beginning was the Word. This is about Jesus, right? The same one who, again in chapter twelve, verse. Uh, Verse 12, chapter 2 here, it says, You have come to know the one who is from the beginning. And so 1 John 1, 1 reminds us of John 1. And it's no coincidence that the phrase also sounds like the very beginning of Scripture, right? Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, the first words of the whole Bible. And so all that to say, this phrase, in the beginning, I think it's meant to take us all the way back to Genesis 1 through those steps. The very beginning of God's Word and everything that happens there. And, and can I just say, believe in God has been the message since the beginning. This is the primary thrust of the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Have faith in God and his Messiah. And can I also just say this, it, th- this is the ultimate test for whether or not you're in Jesus or not. It's the only test. How, how do I know that you're saved? Have you trusted in Christ? First John 5, 4, it, it, kind of the same idea when talking about having victory over the world. He says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It's positional. Again, we, we've got to think about some of this hard language from God's perspective and what he said and how he's framed it. It says, we know him if we've kept his commands and if you say you know him but don't keep his commands, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. But how does the Bible tell us that we are found to have kept his commands? Well, it's not based on our works or anything that we do. In the beginning, look at Abraham, right? This is, this is important, right? Genesis, this is Genesis 26. God says, Abraham listened to my voice and kept my mandate, my commands, my statutes, my instructions. He kept the law. It's all the same language. Now ask yourself, how is it possible that Abraham kept the law before it was ever given? It's because he had faith in Christ. It is not a new command. Believe in the Christ. And yes, there is a, a sense in which it's new because it's on, it's on this side of Christ's coming, right? This is why in verse 8 he says, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He's already come once. He's inaugurated the kingdom. He's, he's done it for us in that sense. But it's not a new command. This is the command of the entire Bible. Have faith. 
there's another aspect to this command idea here as well. If you look over in chapter 3 of our 1 John, verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So the command is believe, like we just mentioned, and to love one another. And this, this idea of loving your brother, it's brought out right in verses 9 and 10 of our text as well. That's, that's part of what it means to walk in the light, right? But again, this is not a new command. If we, if we understand the beginning to be uh, kind of the beginning of Scripture, we know in Leviticus uh, 19, love your neighbor as yourself. It's been there since the beginning. But it's also a new command, and it's new command in this sense. How did Jesus command us to love? Well, not like we love ourselves, but rather how he loved us. You don't have to turn there, but in John 13, if you remember, Jesus says this words, a new commandment I give to you. So this is the new idea. That you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Again, it's this idea that it's new because Jesus has come down, he's, he's inaugurated the kingdom, he's done it, he's shown us what it looks like, and now we just have to follow him and walk in his same path. Again, don't, don't fall into things like legalism here, right? What if we already said, we, we, we already have a, a grid for this. Imperatives follow indicatives. We are positionally saved and we learn to walk in that and grow in what it means to be what we have already been made. We are saved and so we believe and we love people because that's what God's people do. Worship team, you can, you can come up. Th- this entire message, this entire pattern that we've observed for uh, the life of God's people, it, it's an old one. It's a new one because it's on this side of Christ's coming, but it's an old one because this is the reality. God has always given his commands to us after bringing us to himself. From creation to the exodus to the, to the new covenant, God moves towards us first, and we respond by loving him because he first loved us, as John is going to say later in this letter. He's also never expected that we hold the law and the commands that he gives. Right? What, what he's expected is that you believe in him and you trust in his Messiah for salvation because you cannot save yourself. Christians, the Lord has graciously come down and saved you. He has made you something that you, that you were not. And in response to that, we're called to, to just walk in that light by believing him, by, by keeping his commands, by trusting that what he has said is good for us is the best thing for our joy. And because we've not been glorified, we often... We often fail in that, but what do we do when we fail? We cling to the promises of God. We do the same thing God has wanted for his people since the beginning. We hope that our Messiah is going to work on our behalf based on his perfect righteousness. And we trust that one day he's going to come back again to make us truly righteous just like him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that you have come, uh, that you have had victory 
Um, Lord, we recognize that we uh, find ourselves in the middle of your two comings, and we, uh, we, we struggle in that, Lord. We struggle in the reality that you have, you have had victory, Lord. You've, you've set us apart. You've made us right with you. You've made us holy. Lord, but so often we can look at our lives and see uh, that that's not, that's not what we look like yet. And so, God, help us to believe this message this morning. Help us to believe that what you've given us uh, to do is not ultimately to win your favor or to keep your favor, Lord, but so that we would be able to walk with you in fellowship, Lord, that we would have joy. And Lord, ultimately when we fail, that we wouldn't be given over to despair, but that we would trust, as we sang this morning, that you've had victory and that you're going to come back down and take us to you. God, we thank you for these things. We pray these things in your name. Amen.